Hello and welcome to Sururbano, a podcast where we talk to leading scholars on Latin American cities about their work, the cities they love, and how to make them better. I'm Isabel Peñaranda Curry, and I'm a PhD student at UC Berkeley's City and Regional Planning Department. Our co-host today is Irene Farah, and our second guest of the season is Professor Kala Hummel. We're discussing Professor Hummel's recently published book, Why Informal Workers Organize, Contentious Politics, Enforcement, and the State. Given that over half of Latin America's workers are estimated to be informal, a percentage that's estimated to have grown in the pandemic, this book's exploration on why informal workers choose to organize, or not, is timely and important. We talked to Cala about their experience actually working as a street vendor in La Paz, about how governments should relate to informal workers, and about the palatability of cowheart sandwiches. Mm. Check out our show notes for a link to Professor Hummel's book, subscribe to our podcast, and reach out if you're interested in co-hosting. Vámonos. Hi, everybody. So excited about this episode today, which I am co-hosting with Irene Farah. Irene, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm a third-year PhD candidate in city and regional planning at UC Berkeley, and I'm interested broadly in the management of public space and how changes in political institutions and new technologies like open data portals impact how street vendors, local officials, and street-level bureaucrats negotiate over public space. And I'm just really excited to be in the conversation with you today. Today we are interviewing Dr. Kala Hamel, who Eden is selected because of their obvious um, overlaps in their research, which I'm very interested in. Dr. Kala Hamel is an assistant professor in the University of Miami's Department of Political Science and has a PhD from the Department of Government in the University of Texas at Austin. Kala studies why and when informal workers organize and the impacts that the world's two billion informal workers have on local and national politics by using statistical ethnographic survey, computational and formal methods and the methods question is definitely something that we're going to get into because it's incredible. So that's precisely what we will be talking about today as we discuss Kala's new book, Why Informal Workers Organize, Contentious Politics, Enforcement, and the State, which is available from Oxford University Press. And we will try to link that in our show notes. So just to get us started, the spirit of this podcast is to kind of capture the energy of sitting down with your favorite academic slash nerdy friend over coffee and talking about the cities that you love. So as an opening question, Kala, we wanted to ask you, what are your favorite places to have this kind of conversation in La Paz or Sao Paulo or both? And can you kind of take us there? Hi, thank you both so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited uh, about the conversation today. And if we were in La Paz, there's um, some absolutely wonderful cafes that have opened in the last number of years. So I would probably take you to Yero Bros off Plaza Morillo, where they have really good Bolivian coffee and also 
roasted cow heart sandwiches, which are some of my favorite lunch <laughs> items, or Cafe Tipica, which is also a really, really great local coffee shop that has Bolivian coffee and a lot of common Bolivian snacks and sweets. Awesome. I remember in La Paz in the mornings, you could get Milo made with sweetened condensed milk, which is just way too delicious. Great. So now we are positioned in these wonderful cafes. We're discussing your book. First of all, could you tell us a little about how you chose this research topic and how you came to it? Well, so as you know, there are street vendors and street markets in every city in Latin America and, and most cities in the world. And so I got really fascinated with these markets when I was a teenager and I was trying to buy every single World Cup team jersey that I could. And these markets just had every single one, right? Like so many teams and countries that you wouldn't expect to just find on a street in Quito or, or wherever I was. And so I got really fascinated in how these supply chains worked since they didn't seem to be what I was learning about in economics classes at the University of Washington. And then also the people that worked in the markets and how people that worked in these markets engaged with each other and with supply chains and with local government. And that pretty quickly led me to the unions and the associations, which in most Latin American cities have a huge impact on street vendors' daily lives and, and routines. So I started looking at the dynamics of those and then realized that political science didn't really have great explanations for why and how these associations and groups existed and, and how they interacted with local government. So I guess the next question is what makes a worker informal? I know this is a contentious or at least a difficult definition sometimes. It's, it's a very messy concept, I think. The definition that I use in the book is that anyone who is working outside of state labor regulations, whether that's working without licenses, not paying taxes, or breaking employment laws is informal. Of course, that means that most people are informal in some way, and it gets a little messy to define how that governs how people relate to the state, right? So in the book, I have this big broad definition in a forthcoming article that I have with Alicia Holland in Latin American Politics and Society, we spend some more time on this definition and we propose a index-based definition that tallies how many ties and the kinds of ties that individuals have to the state as a way of classifying informality more on a continuum rather than a binary. And this continuum has been proposed before by, by Ostrom and co-authors and plenty of other scholars, but I believe that our way of operationalizing it is one of the first uh, that practitioners can practically and relatively quickly use in their own work. I guess I could follow up just by asking, in the book, you chose to study La Paz, El Alto, and Sao Paulo as cases to compare varying degrees of enforcement capacity and organizing. But as junior scholars, just choosing where you're going to carry out your fieldwork is sometimes difficult. So we just wanted to hear how did you choose those field sites and how did you create those networks within the cities and you mentioned like you gained some trust by doing some ethnographic work, but how did you choose the field sites and, and those networks? 
So the field site shaped my questions. I, I didn't intend to choose the city and then have the, the city choose my dissertation project. But one of the really interesting and great things about working in Bolivia and in La Paz is that there's lots and lots of political dynamics that you see in Bolivia that are not well explained by political science theories and by all different kinds of academic literature. The political dynamics of La Paz spur a whole bunch of different research questions. So I ended up working in La Paz and El Alto at first because that was where I saw this really high variation in informal workers' activities, organizing engagement with local politics. And then also once I looked into other possible cases, saw that Bolivia scored really high on all kinds of variables I was interested in. And so it made sense to continue with that as a case. Were I to do this again, I wish that I would have had more information going into the process about the variables I was going to be interested in and, and could have done a more, um, a more traditional case selection. But I probably would have come out with La Paz and El Alto as part of that case selection anyway. I think it's appropriate to let the field site guide your questions as long as there's a good rationale for doing that. And as long as you don't claim that a single field site is representative of the whole world, right? Right, right. That's great advice. And as Isabel mentioned earlier, just the diversity of methodologies you employ in your book is completely impressive by analyzing surveys, carrying out participant observation, interviews, even carrying out your own original survey and doing some ethnographic work, becoming a vendor in La Paz. How did you become a vendor and like what struck you the most in your research? So I became a vendor accidentally. I intended to do ethnographic work and participant observation when I went to La Paz, but I didn't intend to work as a vendor because I didn't want to impose myself on the street vendors I was working with any more than I already was, right? Like I'm uh, watching and talking with vendors as they're going about their relatively demanding work day. And so I didn't want to assume anything. But once I started hanging around the markets, people started giving me job offers. And so after I got my third or fourth job offer, I was like, maybe this is actually a good idea. Maybe it would help me understand the dynamics of, of the markets better uh, if I physically engaged in the work. And that's what happened. I ended up working with new street vendors that I was already interviewing. And so we came to an arrangement where I wouldn't make any money and I would give all the money back to them. And they understood that this was part of the research project that I was doing and that, you know, being a street vendor wasn't top of my pre-existing skill set. And so they also had low expectations for my ability to sell things and to make them money, which ended up being good because I was not a great street vendor. <laughs> and, um, or at least I'm not a very lucrative street vendor. I did not make anyone a considerable profit. So and what makes a good street vendor? It depends on where you're working and what you're working with. So in the markets that I was working in that were licensed and organized, it's similar to any small retail where like you need to be a very quick judge of character and know how to sell things very quickly to people and also have an eye for what grabs somebody's attention while they're browsing through a market, the kinds of merchandise that is going to stand out in the market. There's also some stuff on price where like you need to be within a certain price range. So expensive enough that people think it's probably high quality and worth it, but cheap enough that it's not going to dissuade um, 
people based on price. And I was wondering, how did gaining the trust with the vendors, did that impact how you tried to interview local officials? Or how did you gain the trust of local officials to open up? And how did you create those bridges? Yeah, so with the vendors, the biggest thing for gaining people's trust, especially in La Paz and El Alto, was to get the permission of the union leaders. So I went and talked with the union leaders. Several of them said that it was fine if I continued to work. And so once people generally knew that like I had permission, I was just some kid from the United States. I wasn't there to be an undercover journalist or uh, be competition or anything like that then people who had time were fine with talking to me. Not everyone, but enough people that I could gain some rapport. And so I particularly worked with a lot of the younger street vendors. So there were a number of younger women who were about my age. And so we became friends and I worked with them. And then most of the street vendors in La Paz are older and indigenous. So I started taking Aymara lessons because they would start gossiping about me. And I'd come into like a room at the union headquarters and they'd look at me and switch from Spanish to Aymara and start like laughing and like pointing at me and things. It was like clear they were talking about me. So I started learning some basic Aymara and I was never very good in Aymara, but um, showing that I, that I knew a little bit and then like stumbling out some sentences turned people from gossiping about me to being like, oh my gosh, the gringa speaks Aymara. And so that kind of the ice with a number of the older street vendors as well and, and helped a lot. Um, with the officials, it really depended. So a lot of the bureaucrats in the market's office never trusted me and I didn't really get their trust in part because they'd seen me for months or, or years um, working with street vendors and working with one particular street vendor federation. So I didn't understand the political dynamics of the federation that I was working with when I started and when I joined. And then it turns out, of course, that federation has alliances and enemies. But the public officials in other parts of the city who had less direct personal alliances or entities with the like particular people I was working with in the markets were more forthcoming with me when I was working with the municipal police, again, the younger guys and some of the younger women were much more interested in talking with me. And so we would chat over coffee or api or whatever and and spend some time together on patrol. And then the people that had political ambitions, they liked having a sounding board and somebody that was there nodding uh, while they talked about their grand plans. And so for people who were politically ambitious, I got a lot of material out of them. Um, oh, that's great to know. What part of being a street vendor or of your field most impacted you? What did you understand through the act of being there on the ground constantly? It made me realize how hard it was. So there was lots of stuff that I didn't realize how difficult it was until I was there doing it. So if you walk through a street market, you see lots of people walking around, calling out. Uh, you see people sitting at tables or on stools and you see people sometimes running from law enforcement and watching that I didn't understand 
how difficult that actually was and the demands of it. Once I was getting up at 4.30 a.m. every Saturday and catching the only bus to the market and then hauling like 60 pounds of goods across cobblestones and setting it up in this tiny little specific area where if I didn't set it up exactly in that area, somebody like yelled at me at 6 a.m. And then sitting on this stool that like my body didn't fit into for like six hours and not being able to go to the bathroom or move my body and like needing to be energetic and trying to sell to people and make sure somebody didn't like try to steal by running by distracting me and then like grabbing a bunch of the stuff and running off. Once I had done that a few times, then I realized that there's big physical and psychological costs to doing this job that are not immediately apparent, even if you're talking to people or interviewing them. And, and waiting with people in the offices helped me realize the psychological costs of going to these local bureaucratic offices and asking these officials over and over again for different kinds of things, right? These officials then have your livelihood and your ability to make a profit and feed your family in their hands. If you've spent an afternoon waiting there, you're either not selling or you're doing that after you got up at 4.30 a.m. And then, of course, there's the whole issue of, of police brutality and running from law enforcement if you're an unlicensed vendor in places like Sao Paulo, where I think it's a little easier for observers to see like how much damage that can do. When I was working with my friends in Sao Paulo, we would spend a third of our time running from the military police. And it's pretty terrifying to turn around and see these like two armed military police coming down the sidewalk at you and then need to like grab everything and like run and hide. And it's pretty terrifying to see them catch and beat somebody too. So I think that definitely made a, a huge impact. Um, on me, both observing it and and experiencing parts of it. That's really interesting. I want to switch to the actual argument that you make in your book, challenging the assumption that informality means a lack of order or specifically organization, and also the idea that informality is something that exists outside of the view of the state. You go beyond that and identify the factors that make officials more likely to encourage informal worker organization. I'm just gonna list them quickly. First, where informal workers' compliance affects officials' career advancement. Second, where the number and activities of informal workers exceed officials' enforcement capacity. And third, where at least some informal workers have the know-how and resources to organize their colleagues. You conclude that where these conditions exist, and this is a quote, Incentives from officials promote organization, compliance, and civil society participation that would not otherwise exist. Leaders in informal markets use these incentives to make it worth their colleagues' time to join and participate in informal workers' organizations. So could you talk a little bit more about these three factors and why it's important to go beyond the assertion that informal workers organize and to identify the conditions in which that takes place? Yeah, so the start of the project and the start of the book is to shake people and be like, informal workers organize and they organize all over the world and this shouldn't be that surprising of a thing, right? And so the the interesting thing to explain and describe from a scholarly point of view and also from, say, a street vendor's point of view is what goes into that variation and why are there so many and pretty powerful uh, 
organizations in places like La Paz and so few in places like Sao Paulo or the United States. Keeping in mind that even in places like Sao, Sao Paulo or New York, there are informal workers organizations. They're just a minority of those workers instead of a massive majority like they are in La Paz and El Alto. Uh, what I find is that it depends on how officials, especially local bureaucrats and elected officials, interact with the informal workers in um, their area, especially their city. And so where those local officials encourage some kind of organization, we see these massive organizations form. And in places where officials either ignore those workers or I think probably more commonly repress those workers, so that's a disincentive, we see those organizations remaining really small and only representing a minority of people that for usually a variety of local reasons see some benefit in organizing despite this overwhelming disincentive from the local government. And that's what we see in places like Sao Paulo and New York. I'm curious, did you see that within one place, are there certain groups of informal workers that organize more than others and like street vendors organize more than domestic workers, for example? And why would that be? Yeah, so there are some groups of informal workers that organize more than others. I have some survey data on this in the book. I think it's in chapter three. We do see some variation across groups, street vendors, domestic workers, transportation workers, and trash pickers slash recyclers, waste pickers, terminology changes depending on the country, all organize around the same rate. So on average, and this is uh, survey data on average across the world that has a bunch of different measurement issues, but we see about 10% of those groups organizing. Whereas we see some groups that have very low indices of organizing are in like uh, piecework where you assemble stuff in your house. And then we also see agricultural workers have a much higher rate of organizing at about 20%. So per my theory, that would depend on the kinds of resources that individuals have available to them and then also how much they're interacting with local officials. So peace workers aren't interacting with local officials very much, right? They're in their own homes. They are also aren't interacting with other workers. They're interacting with a single employer. Uh, I think that's a big part of what explains the, the peace worker side of it. I'm not sure on why agricultural workers have higher rates of organizing because agricultural workers aren't the group that is having the most interaction with officials or have the most resources. So uh, I'd have to look into that more. I think there's probably like a third variable that has to do with like the history of agricultural worker organizing that isn't part of the theory in the book. You mentioned that the mode of organization varies across different countries and like U.S. cities have a lower degree of organization. But I'm wondering if you think that these levels of organization might grow as cities become more densely populated and as levels of unemployment have increased. And if you think that in some ways informal workers in U.S. cities could be benefited by organizing more, even when the levels of enforcement are high. Yeah, so... 
I think it's highly unlikely that we'll see an increase in organization across informal workers in the United States precisely because enforcement is so high. We're an incredibly punitive country when it comes to, to policing and enforcement across all different kinds of things. And if it does change, I think we're still going to be in a punitive approach and a punitive framework. We're just hopefully going to be finding people instead of shooting them or arresting them instead of beating them and things like that. And those those tactics are still going to be big disincentives to organize because they take resources away from workers. In order to see an increase in informal workers organizing, we would need to see officials having a, a positive and constructive um, approach where officials decide that maybe they get more leverage from informal workers if those informal workers are are organized and, and deal with them as a collective instead of as individuals. Given the history of policing in the U.S., I think that's pretty unlikely. Yeah, I wanted to follow up about whether COVID created some incentives for officials to promote organization among informal workers. I briefly worked with a project in Cucuta on the border between Colombia and Venezuela where informality is probably the highest in in Colombia. And it became very obvious that it was important for informal workers to be organized so that, you know, basic government measures could reach them because they are outside of other frames of legibility. So I know you're studying COVID now. Uh, Have you found a kind of overlap in, in your work? Yes, I have three or four different directions I want to go with this. So please, please try to control my tangents. Um, so, so first, informality and COVID overlapped a lot. It's been hard for us to get individual level data on this. I think there is some emerging now, but in the things that we worked on, we were looking at, at broad trends that we were noticing and associational patterns rather than say like high quality individual level data. In Bolivia, for example, informal workers appeared to be much more likely to get COVID. And a lot of informal workers were considered um, to be essential workers under the um, Bolivian COVID regulations. And so a lot of them weren't quarantined and did go work. But unlike, say, you know, if you're working for a supermarket, they're going to send you to work with masks and they're going to have some kind of disinfectant. If you're working as a market vendor, nobody's giving you masks, right? And you may not be able to find or, or purchase them for yourself. So there were high levels of COVID, at least anecdotally. And then also some city health departments did studies within their cities that showed that informal workers, particularly in transportation and markets, contracted COVID at pretty high levels. And at some points in Bolivia, where something like 40% of the infections in some cities were from transportation workers, market workers, and their families. So there was definitely a high level of transmission and people weren't able to get protective equipment to prevent that. I think this is really fascinating because with COVID, I think it became clear how difficult it was for policymakers to intervene in informal workers' activity and lives. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit to expand on your work with Alicia Holland and how thinking beyond this dichotomy of informality and how would targeting be possible when we're thinking about a continuum for policymakers to actually carry out uh, effective policies? 
So one of the positive things that we did see around Latin America and around the world with COVID was that governments used these programs and networks that they developed before COVID uh, to do things like direct cash transfers to then very quickly distribute money and in some places, protective equipment tests, vaccines, tablets, things like that to citizens and especially to citizens who were more vulnerable, marginal in some sense, right? And so we see countries doing this and successfully reaching a lot of people who also work informally through their cash transfer programs. And this does somewhat overlap with what Alicia and I are talking about with our index-based concept of informality. So if we're looking at informality as a continuum of how much or little you are connected to the state, then you can count those things up, right? Do you pay taxes? No. Okay, then a tax-based program isn't going to target you. Do you have a license? No. Okay, so a program that relies on a database of licenses isn't going to target you. Um, Are you enrolled in uh, social security? No. So employment-based social security isn't going to target you. But are you enrolled in a universal social security? Yes. Then if that Uh, government uses that universal program, it is going to target somebody that a formal social security or an employment-based social security program or a tax-based social security program wouldn't. Similarly, there's lots of informal workers all over the world who aren't part of any of those, but they do have kids they send to school. And so they're connected to the state through their kids' school enrollment. So if you have programs that target families through schools, then you also get people that you wouldn't through tax or employment-based social security or other programs like that. Yeah, this is really interesting to think about how through different programs you could do the targeting. And I I did want to ask you about how towards the end of the book, you propose simpler and concrete enrollment guidelines to design formalization policies. So how do you think business registrations or micro-business tax brackets could be implemented to just as a policy intervention? Yes. Um, so I'd, I'd love to do more work on this at some point. This is what I've seen work. So this is what I would suggest for, for people that are trying to design these programs. We see lots of programs that try to target the informal sector, and we see very few programs that successfully target the informal sector. And one of the big distinctions is the the number of barriers that policymakers put in a particular program. So I think it should be on the onus of the government and the policymakers to figure out who they do and do not want to target once they already have a bunch of people enrolled, rather than on the onus of informal workers. If the goal of the policy is to say that you're doing something without actually doing it, then it's great to put up a bunch of barriers. Or if it is to create another exclusive group, great to put up a bunch of barriers. But if you want to get health benefits to people who aren't in employer-based health insurance, then having the lowest number of barriers and trying to figure out who qualifies or who doesn't afterwards is going to get a much larger number of people those benefits. And the worst case scenario is that you give health benefits to people that didn't quite meet your criteria, which isn't a terrible outcome, right? If the goal is to is to distribute health benefits. Similarly, with taxes, a lot of times there's business registration or tax policies that give lower tax rates to micro-businesses, right? So larger businesses have an incentive to try to misrepresent that they 
meet those barriers. And so if you make the burden of evidence really high on whoever is enrolling in, say, a microenterprise tax program, then you're discouraging people who are having a hard time finding all of those documents. You're not discouraging the medium-sized business that does have more resources to hunt down those documents and still has an incentive to get that tax rate from applying. So in those cases, it makes sense for the government to assume the burden of hunting down tax cheats afterwards rather than trying to discourage them from the get-go because they discourage people who own their own business and, and don't have a lot of time to hunt down documents or may not have a lot of those documents. Thinking about targeting and the government identifying informal workers, in my work, I've been struggling with this tension between recognizing workers but also surveilling them as part of the state. So um, especially thinking about quantification and the types of methods that you're employing, right? How do we enumerate them without making this about surveillance? Because there's this long history of persecution, right? So in one of your presentations of your book, I saw that you had a map of street vendors in the bus. And so my question is, how do you think about this tension between realizing the vendors and the surveillance of vendors? Yeah, so this is a really thorny issue, and it's a really important one, especially it's as you say, we generate more and more data. So I, I dodged this issue mostly by working with street vendors who are by definition already public in their work, right? I didn't tell anybody to go out on the street and sell something on the corner. I approached people that were already very publicly doing this work. So, so they've selected into being into an occupation that is very visible to everyone by definition. With the maps that I have, all of those maps are for vendors that are licensed by the city. So the locations come from the licenses, all that information the city already has. And so I, again, kind of dodged some surveillance issues there because these are locations that the city gave to people on licenses. What I mapped was the locations on the licenses. And then I also mapped cross streets so that it, it doesn't exactly identify where someone is. It more identifies the general area. But I don't have a good answer to, to the surveillance question, in part because I work with street vendors. If I worked with domestic workers or sex workers, then it would be a much thornier question because those workers aren't already in city databases with their license information. Right. Yeah, I think a lot about this here in San Francisco, just sex workers being identified in crime data in the San Francisco Open Data Portal. So we know where the hotspots are and the government issues this data, but then how do they enforce an activity that is not allowed in the city? So this is just something that repeatedly comes back to me when I'm thinking about mapping vendors or seeing where they're located in the city or like mapping out Tianguis. So um, thank you so much for, for answering that. Um, well, I'm also a big proponent of any kind of program that decriminalizes something. Our questions on surveillance, I think, are easier to tease apart and also do a lot of good and do away with a lot of harm if we decriminalize all kinds of work and don't prosecute people for, for the kind of work that they're doing. And I think this applies to, to all kinds of things, whether it's, you know, sex work or drugs or selling pirated CDs or whatever. Uh, and then also the kinds of policies that we see having the biggest impact are the universal ones. The best way to get the largest number of informal workers into a program is to have a universal program that isn't means tested or means based, but just gives everyone enough money for food or gives everyone the same for, for social security. That doesn't help 
researchers figure out who's informal, but it does help lots of, of people who are informal access basic goods and services. I think that reaches the end of our questions. Edena, did you have any follow-up ones? No, but I'm probably going to ask you more questions, Kala, through email. We need to catch another coffee sometime. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much uh, to you both for having me on. This was a really fun conversation, and I'd, I'd love to catch up with you over some roasted cow hearts at some point. Sounds amazing. I don't know about the cow hearts, but thank you so much. <laughs> Your work is really incredible, and I strongly encourage all the listeners of this podcast to, to check it out. Urbano is a product of the Latin American Cities Working Group, based in UC Berkeley. To find out more about us, check out the show notes, where we also link the articles we discuss. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you want to be a co-host, you can reach us at latam underscore cities on Twitter, or write to me on Instagram or Twitter at ipenarandac. If you like this episode, click subscribe, leave us a review, and please tell your friends. This season was made possible by UC Berkeley's Global Metropolitan Studies and the Center of Latin American Studies. Our original music is made by a planner, Jaime Alejandro Angarita. And our original art is made by the talented Rachel Myers. Check out her Instagram. Finally, our production was done by Francesca Frenzy, without whom this truly would not have been possible. Thanks, everyone.